across the city and South Cambridgeshire. This is Susie Thorpe. Cambridge 105 Radio. Now, coming up, we've got a really interesting feature, actually, because as you all know, we all know, we're right in the middle of this COVID-19 pandemic. And very recently, a report by Rand Europe Cambridge said that the NHS is going to have to do more with less. Now, they did a report called Innovating for Improved Healthcare Policy and Practice for a Thriving NHS. And it was funded by the Department of Health and Social Care Policy Research Programme. And Dr. Sonia Marjanovic, I spoke to her yesterday. She is a senior research leader in innovation health and science at Rand Europe Cambridge. And she spoke to me yesterday on the phone about innovation in Europe. And first of all, I just asked her her role, first of all, as part of this. So I currently lead a portfolio of healthcare innovation and healthcare improvement work at Rand Europe. And just in case you're not familiar with RAND Europe, we're a not-for-profit policy research institute based in Cambridge um, in the UK. What that means in practice is that I get to work on really interesting questions that policymakers and other decision makers need answers to in order to improve the quality and safety of, of healthcare that patients receive. And we do that both in the UK and internationally. Dr. Sonia Maranovic, you are a lead author in the Health Innovation research at RAND and you studied at university at Johannesburg and then you went on to work on antibiotic resistance bacteria and became very interested in the social side of biomedical science. Can you explain a little bit about that journey please? Yeah sure so yeah as you pointed out um, I initially studied genetics at university in South Africa And I chose genetics, well, I quite liked maths and science at school, but it was also a really exciting time in the field of genetics in terms of developments with genome sequencing and cloning and gene expression and identifying mutations that were associated with various diseases. So I did my first degree in molecular and microbial genetics and spent some time after that in a lab. But then I soon realized, I guess, that whereas I was fascinated by the science, I was I enjoyed spending time with people more than I did with bacteria, perhaps. <laughs> and I became increasingly interested and drawn to what to the social side of science and especially to the implications of all that the scientific community was discovering for patients. So I really wanted to understand, I guess, what these developments mean for patient well-being and how we can bring the discoveries and the innovations to patients. And I was then fortunate enough to get some funding to first pursue a master's degree and then a Wellcome Trust funded PhD at the Judge Business School here in Cambridge, where I worked precisely on these types of issues, looking at how anything but the science really, so the social factors, cultural factors, collaboration influence our ability to bring innovation um, to those at the coalface. The RAND organisation is a non for profit organisation and I'd like to talk about the recent RAND reports specifically about the innovation within the NHS. Yes, of course. So we were fortunate enough to see receive a multi-year grant from the NIHR, so from the National Institute for Health Research Policy Research Programme, to look at how we can improve the potential of innovation to benefit the healthcare system. And we collaborated on that also with some colleagues from uh, Manchester University. And really, the point of that report was to provide 
practical and actionable recommendations on what needs to happen to accelerate and ease the way by which innovations can reach patients, be that medicines or new diagnostic tests or new treatments. Now, as you've mentioned, it, it can, innovation can be a sensitive topic, not least because NHS staff are already under so much pressure. So really the question then becomes how we can help those at the front line effectively engage with innovation, both to make their own jobs easier and to benefit um, the, the quality of care that patients receive. In the current state of the pandemic that the whole world is in at the moment, your report that you've just completed, Sonia, who really has access to this and who's seen it so far? So the report has, but we've also had ongoing engagement with policymakers throughout the course of the research. So uh, once we completed the report, we sent it to all the people that contributed to, to the research we were conducting, and those included policymakers and um healthcare professionals, individuals involved in various innovation and improvement networks, patient representatives, representatives from the charity sector. So over time, in the course of the research, we engaged with over 700 individuals. Um, but I think it's really important to flag that the report is a great as a final end product, but the route to impact needs to be continuous throughout the course of the research. So we were very fortunate in that we had assembled a working group for this study very early on, and that included, for example, decision makers in NHS England, in the Department of Health and Social Care more widely, in the Office for Life Sciences. And we had regular contact with them to discuss how the project is evolving, what some of the emerging insights are, to discuss the evolving direction of the research and really to facilitate two-way dialogue because impact and, and achieving impact is, is a longer term and ongoing process. Um, it doesn't start with the publishing of a report per se, nor does it finish there. <laughs> I get the impression, Sonia, that the NHS has moved literally forward in innovation and digital sphere for within one week as opposed to trying to do this for the last 10 years. Do you think your report now is ever more important because of the way we're trying to innovate the NHS? So I think I'll reflect a bit on innovation in the context of the COVID crisis. I think the, the importance of innovation can only be accentuated by what we're witnessing in response to, to the crisis. Um, and that extends beyond the report that we've produced, of course. I think many of the issues and many of the recommendations we put forth are very relevant. But when we look at what's happening with um, innovation in the context of the COVID crisis, the cultural change, the embeddedness of innovation is happening as we speak, actually. And one of the questions that's on my mind is to what extent it can actually be sustained in a post-COVID time and how we can, I guess, become more fleet on our feet in terms of how we bring innovation to patients in other areas where there's an equally urgent need, for example, cancer or mental health or aging and frailty. And there are likely to be lessons learned from how we're responding to COVID. Now, in the context of COVID, we're seeing innovation not only from traditional players, we're seeing it from sectors outside of healthcare as well. So we do, of course, have traditional players involved. We've got the biopharma industry donating compounds for screening against COVID-19. And some of these are, are actually moving into trials really quickly. We've got tech giants joining forces to bring high-performance computing and, and artificial and 
intelligence to help tackle the outbreak. We're seeing these, as you mentioned, the physician consultations with patients um, that are digitally enabled. They're kind of becoming routine practice overnight. A lot of red tape that has persisted throughout time is, is being removed really quickly. We're seeing the research community spinning out evidence and, and I guess bringing it to the front line at, really at an unprecedented pace. And trials for therapies and vaccines are also commencing at a much faster pace than under normal circumstances. But if we look outside of healthcare, you will have probably seen on the news that Formula One, for example, is repurposing manufacturing capacity to produce ventilators. Um, th th there have been stories in the news about the army working with the NHS to improve supply chains for personal protective equipment. We're seeing supermarkets innovate in how they're adapting their own supply chains um, to, to, to manage supply and ensure that people don't stockpile when it's unnecessary. And then in our own neighborhoods, the general public is innovating um, to, to make sure that the vulnerable are not forgotten. So, for example, WhatsApp groups, I live in the Cherry Hinton area, and <clears throat> there are WhatsApp groups which are matching those who can help and, I don't know, bring milk and other supplies to the elderly or to those who are self-isolating with, with individuals who also identify that they need help on the WhatsApp groups. We're seeing parents finding and sharing materials for online learning. So there's a huge amount of innovation happening at the moment to help tackle COVID. And I think one of the things that's enabling that to happen so quickly and at pace is collective will. So everyone's in this together. We're really aware of our interdependence and then also a very, very clear sense of priorities. Sonia, do you find from a professional point of view, as much as we do not want this pad pandemic, that sometimes it takes a, a, I suppose, a catastrophe for, for us to move, move forward as a human, as you say, as a human collective will. But do you find as a professional, this is very, very exciting that innovation is being accelerated to the pace that you hadn't seen before? <laughs> That's an interesting question. I'm, I think it's a very positive development. I think it shows what we can achieve when we're united by yeah, common priorities and common goals. It, it is exciting. I think it would be naive to think that we will see exactly that same pace now persist in a post-COVID era and apply to every single area where innovation is needed. But as I mentioned earlier, I would hope that the lessons that we're learning from COVID will help us respond to innovation needs in other disease areas um, more readily and, and at a faster pace. Yeah. And we are seeing, even pre-COVID, we're seeing various policy developments that are trying to help make that happen. Um, one example is the Accelerated Access Collaborative, which is a government initiative, um, in fact, a collaborative initiative involving many different um, agencies that is really trying to bring different innovations to, to patients quicker than before and to remove some of the barriers to accelerating that uptake. What's the future for you and uh, the future for RAND in future projects? I'm sure there are many, but what, uh, what are the, the things going on at RAND at the moment? <laughs> Where do we start? <laughs> um, 
So we have a, a very active portfolio of work across different sectors, health being only one of them. We also work in defense, security and infrastructure. We work in home affairs and social policy. We work in emerging technology, in research policy. So there, there's a lot going on for me personally and from a healthcare perspective. My entire portfolio focuses on bridging, well, on building connections and bridging silos between evidence and insights that come from innovation studies and those that come from health services research, from work that focuses on quality improvement. And I hope to be doing more in that regard. In With respect to the innovation work, we've identified many recommendations for for actions that need to be taken that could help NHS staff engage with innovating more effectively. And I hope to continue to work on some of those issues and help support their implementation. Um, I would really like to, in light of the COVID experience, think a bit more about what we can learn and how we can respond more effectively to future challenges, to many of the equally urgent, but perhaps more salient emergencies uh, that, that, that we face. So. Mm -hmm. We've done quite a lot of work in the cancer space, and I'm hoping to do more in that space as well. I currently sit on the expert advisory group of NHS England's efforts for the cancer program. And so I'm hoping to continue to help contributing to bringing innovation to the, to the front line through some of those engagements as well. So the current report, the RAND report, Sonia, that we have been talking about, which is really, really interesting, and the government's policy initiatives are gradually helping to support a more innovative, as we said, healthcare system. Staff obviously still lack resources and infrastructure, especially now in this present climate at the moment. How can we help the NHS staff without putting extra pressure on them to really move forward and engage with innovation? Because it's a big ask. They're doing an amazing, amazing job. So one of the challenges that we face is that NHS staff are constantly firefighting and the demands on their time are just immense. So asking them to then, in, on top of that, engage with innovation can be seen as a tall ask. So we need to think about how we can actually enable that realistically. And the thing that people most often talk about is funding. But our research found that funding is of course necessary, but is absolutely not sufficient to ensure that um, innovations do reach patients and that NHS staff are enabled to engage with innovating. There are many other barriers to do with skills, with incentives, with accountabilities, with training, with networks, but there are also things we can do to, to help NHS staff along the way. And we found that some of the most important things include leadership support, so organizational leadership that really values innovation and that can communicate to other NHS staff why it's important, and equally leadership that can reward it. And actually in some hospitals, they do have recognition schemes, either through career pathways and promotions or awards for contributing to innovation. But giving in, in, these individuals, giving NHS staff permission to innovate also means releasing their time and their headspace so some programs in the country do that. They essentially buy out NHS staff time so that they can effectively engage with either developing innovations or with their uptake. So two examples would be the Clinical Entrepreneurs Program and the NHS Innovation Accelerator Program. We also make, need to make it easier for NHS staff to engage with innovating and academic health science networks, and we have one here in our own region, 
are helping with that because they're they're brokering information, they're connecting those who are developing new products, new technologies with decision makers in in the NHS. And there are also some longer term actions. So our report found that for innovation to really flourish in the healthcare system, we do need cultural change. And what that means is that we need to expose doctors in training and nurses and other allied health professionals to the concept and practice of innovation early on. And that's not to say that everyone needs to be an innovator. And, and this is a really important point. Not everyone in the NHS needs to be an innovator. But more people really need to understand what innovation is about, what innovations exist, and how innovation can help them deliver the best possible care. And to support that, we also need to think about integrating innovation-related skills into medical education training, for example. How soon do you then bring in this innovation into the NHS? Do you start really at universities, at schools? Do you start training colleges? I mean, how soon do we try and change uh, and move the NHS forward digitally? I mean, I'm sure everybody working in the NHS would like to be able to do this straight away? Well, one of the things that we're arguing is that it really does need to be integrated early on into the education curriculum for all allied health professions, um, because innovation isn't confined to one clinical area or, or one healthcare profession, but it's ongoing. We can see if we look at digital innovation, things change so quickly, so people's skills need to be refreshed, which means that healthcare providers, be they hospitals or primary care or indeed community care and social care, they also need to invest in making sure that their staff are aware of what's going on and that their skills are being uh, updated. One way to do that may be through continuing professional development programs that uh, many healthcare professionals have access to. Oh, that was Dr. Sonia Marjanovic there for you, talking from RAN, non-for-profit organisation. And the report that they, she was talking about was innovating for improved healthcare policy and practice for a thriving NHS. Absolutely fascinating. And thank you very much to Dr. Sonia Marjanovic for her input there. Very, well, absolutely fascinating. This is Susie Thorpe on Cambridge 105 Radio.